message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. We do start our CS Advent this morning and uh, it's a season where we, again, a time of waiting. It's to prepare our hearts so that we can keep, number one, just the focus on why Christmas is Christmas. That it's not just about gifts and all those other things. We don't do that just because of despising materialism or something like that. Uh, it's not this war against the world in that sense. As much as it's putting the focus on why do we have Christmas and this beauty that we see in Christmas that God brought forth a child to save the world. And so this morning we begin to enter into something that we were talking about in life group this morning is really a hard discipline for us. This first week of Advent, we're going to focus on hope but from the aspect of how do we have hope in the midst of times of waiting? Uh, I don't know that anybody would raise their hand this morning and said, I really wait well. That's one of my strong points. It's one of the things I do exceptionally well because really I don't ever hear anybody bragging about how well they are, you know, can wait, how patient they are. And so it's one of those things that we're already challenged in this area of our life, and yet to practice this, to anticipate, to wait purposely, seems kind of odd. And so since it's a little bit odd for us in our human understanding, we're going to go to um, uh, one of those typical Christmas stories in, in the Bible from the book of Job. Uh, you probably have never heard you know, an Advent sermon from the book of Job, but that's where we're going this morning, because part of this waiting he probably, out of all humankind, probably waited as well as anybody. And yet we still see very much this uh, tension in his time of waiting. God's people have always been a people that were waiting. Ever since the fall, we have been waiting. We've been waiting since Genesis 3 for God to send someone to redeem us from our fall and from our sin. And 2,000 years ago, God brought into completion that first, if you want to say, phase of waiting when Christ came with all the prophets that for hundreds of years had said there's a crisis coming. They were waiting and waiting, even through 400 years right before Christ comes, of silence from God in the sense that we don't have biblical record and we don't have something where God is speaking to his people. We see kind of a momentary silence of even the prophecies. And so they're waiting in a kind of dark period and kind of a silent period. And, and then Christ comes in all of his beauty. And then we enter another time of waiting, the time of waiting that you and I are participating in. And that is when Christ said that he will come back, and that he will come back for his bride, and that he will come back and, and he'll take us to the Father. And so we have a time of waiting. And God has done all kinds of different things to keep us in that waiting mode and to encourage us. When we came to the Lord's Supper table two weeks ago, when, um, when we came and part of the practice of coming to the Lord's Supper table is remembering what has happened and all the prophecies and promises that God kept in Christ Jesus. But also, he said, you keep on doing this until when? Uh, to, to practice the Lord's Supper table. Keep on doing it until Jesus returns. He said, now, now why did God do that? Because he said, okay, I know waiting is hard. And so I want to give you something visual. I want to give you something that you can participate in that shows you the past and my promises fulfilled, but also that I will fulfill this future coming promise 
and prophecy. And so we're in this in-between time right now between Christ's return, between heaven, the promise of heaven, and we're in this time, and, and even on that spiritual aspect, I don't know that we could really say, you know, Bobby, I just wait well. I just really wait well. When we were talking about it in life group this morning, we were talking about we can't even make it through the McDonald's line and wait for an extra three or four minutes without getting a little edgy. So how can we wait well and find hope in the midst of our waiting? So uh, find the book of Job. Uh, it's kind of one, the book of Job is one of those that kind of throws us a little bit because we find it not in the middle of the Bible, but kind of in the middle. And yet it's probably one of the first stories of the Bible if we just put it in chronological form. The, the book of Job more than likely would have happened very, very early in, um, in the biblical recordings. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the patience of Job? How many of people have ever accused you of having the patience of Job? Well, so, so here's this phrase. It's not one that maybe we would identify ourselves with. Certainly others would not say, you know, that Bobby, he's got the patience of Job. I've never heard that from Carly's mouth. In all these years of, of never once in 37 years have I heard that. You know, you have the patience of Job. Uh, and so we find this man in the Old Testament that really is characteristic of waiting. And I would challenge us this morning of waiting well. Look what it says about him in Job 1.1. 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I could stop right there and I could say, okay, guys, you want to aspire to something? <laughs> aspire to be that man or that woman. Did you hear the characteristics of how the Bible described Job? It said that this man was blameless, does not mean sinless, okay? but it meant he was a righteous man. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And it's that middle description that he feared God that really complements the other one. That's why he was a blameless man, because he feared God, and so he wants to walk righteously with God. And because he feared God, he turned away from evil. And so this fear of God is kind of characteristic of Job. And we begin to see that uh, here's a man that, that God is calling out and pointing to and saying, you know, as far as human, human people, you know, you can kind of be like this guy. This is not a bad guy to model yourself after. Of course, Christ is the only one ultimately that we point ourselves to. But, but here's a good example that you, if you had Job as a neighbor, you could tell your kids, hey, try to be like Mr. Job. And that would be a good one to aspire to, to be like. Now, when you find out, when you begin to read this, we find out a lot about Job. Look at verse 2. We find out that he had a great family. It says they were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He's got ten mouths to feed. He, he has a wife also. doesn't mention her in that verse. But this is the guy that not only is walking righteously with God, but he, he's a father of ten children. We go on and we find out a little bit more about Job in the next verse. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all people in the East. Most scholars believe that he would be what we would call the Bill Gates of that era, that he truly was. When, when you were in that region, you're like, okay, who's the guy 
that kind of is the wealthiest in this area. Job was that guy. So here's a guy who has a wonderful family. He's got great provisions and, and that God has blessed him with great wealth. And look what it says about how serious he was about his faith. Job 1.5. In verse 4, it talks about how they would have these times of just recognizing God uh, for the children. And yet he loved his children so well. Look at the responsibility he took to make sure that he was just always bringing his children before God. Verse 5. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said... It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Do you get what? They're under the sacrificial system. And he said, you know, my children may have messed up. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that I'm offering sacrifices for them. This is a good dad. This is a good man. And God has his hand of blessing upon him. And the rest of chapter 1 basically tells us that uh, then we have this scene from heaven where Satan actually comes before God and, and they kind of, they begin to talk about Job. And Satan, as he always does, because he's the accuser of the brethren, he brings accusation against Job and against God. He says, God, you know the only reason that he's obedient to you? Because you blessed him so much. Hey, you give 10 healthy children abundance of wealth, you give that to anybody, they're just going to think that you're a great God because they have a great life. Now, like all the lies of Satan, they're built on half-truths. And folks, I, I would venture to say that we have a lot of that mindset in our own mentality, in our own spirituality. That when things are going great in your life, man, what a great God we have. But do we take that same kind of mindset when we are really in the crucibles of life, when life is tough and difficult, and we really have maybe even a silence from God, can we at those times say, you know, we have such a great God. We want to. We can believe that. By faith, we can declare that. But it's really hard in the trenches and the darkness of those dark times, those tenuous times of our life, to just say, you know, God is so great this morning when our life is falling apart when we feel like our life is literally being torn apart. See, there's sometimes that you feel like your life is falling apart. And you understand when I say there's other times that you feel like your life is being torn apart? That there's adversaries out there. I mean, it's one thing to make a wrong decision and have to reap what you sow, and your life is falling apart because maybe you didn't make all the right choices. That's one dilemma in life. But have you ever been there where you truly do feel like your life is being torn apart and there's aggressive adversaries in your life? That would be true here. Satan goes before God. This is the only reason the accusation against Job is he's not really as holy as you think he is, God. And the accusation against God is, well, the only reason he's even as holy as he is is because you've been so kind to him. You've blessed him so much. Satan's pointing these accusations both way. Well, God kind of calls his hand on it. I don't know if that's proper theology. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, but, he, but, but God says, no, I, this is a faithful man. 
Not just because of blessings, but this is a faithful man. And he gives permission for Satan to go in there and really not just watch Job's life fall apart, but try to start to tear apart Job's life. And what we begin to see in the next chapter is that his life really does begin to fall apart. But before that, before we close out uh, chapter 1, look what happens. In the balance of one chapter, he loses all of his possessions. And the minute that they talk about his, you know, somebody, a messenger would come and say, Job, we have really bad news. All the cattle that you had over there, all the donkeys and all this other stuff, lost it all. Then before that one even finishes, another one rushes into the room of Job. We've got even further news. Uh, all the donkeys, all the possessions that you had over here, gone. Before that even finishes out, somebody else comes in. So we have the most terrible news of all. You've lost all of your children. They were all together in the house. It just collapsed, and, and all your children are gone. In the measure of moments, maybe hours, at most a day, it seems like this news comes. And Job's life is not falling apart, it's being torn apart. One of the most amazing verses that we looked at last week, we were looking about Abraham going to this mountain to sacrifice his son, to be a follower of Christ, just to follow God's command upon his life. It said, remember what it said that he left the two servants here and he took the son and they went the rest of the way up the mountain to do something. Do you remember what that was? To worship. And we're going, worship? Maybe obedience. But I don't know that I would have a heart of worship that we just sang about if I'm going up there and I know that the, the other at the top of that mountain, I'm going to sacrifice my son. But look what happens, Job chapter 1, verse 20. All these messengers come in and they give this fatal news to Job. And look what it Then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. These were signs of, of great mourning. And he fell on the ground and he what? How do we do that, guys? We don't even wait well. And to have a heart of worship in the midst of waiting, of hearing this word, this isn't, ah, uh, you lost your job. I mean, that's tough enough. But when they come in and say, you know, not only have you lost all your belongings, that's the minimum part of this, your children. Sorry to tell you, they're, they're all gone. And yet this righteous man, this man of God, This is what was culturally normal for those days. He shaves his head. He falls on the ground. He, he begins this mourning process. And yet he considers this. The Bible says that he worshiped God. Look down at verse 21, 22. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I wish you had a pastor that could model that. But you don't. I want to be that man. I want to wait well. I want to have faith in the crucibles of life. Not just when my life is falling apart, but when it's being torn apart. And yet we see this example of righteousness in Job. This is not much, this isn't to make much of Job, okay? 
He's not the hero of this story. But because he has a hero, because he knows his God, and he knows his God well, he's able to to do some heroic things. And you and I, we never need to be the hero of the story, folks. But because we have a hero who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, we can do some heroic things. Not to bring attention to ourselves, but so that the glory can go to the Father. This is the people that we're called to be. And, and so we see this thing in, in verse 22. And all Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. At what point of this are you jumping off the bus and saying, okay. You know, scholars have actually argued, is this a parable? Is this really a fictitious guy? Or is this Job was a real biblical you know, person? just so that you know I believe as your pastor that he is a real biblical person. I don't think this is a parable. I don't think it's a story. But can you imagine why some scholars would say, this is almost has to be a parable. This has to almost has to be a story because can anybody be like this? The rest of the story. So faith and trust in God goes beyond our comprehension. Uh, basically, it's say that he's not complaining, he's not bringing charges against God. And it causes you to wonder, how did this guy become this guy? He must have married well. And when he kind of sank to a new low, his helpmate was right there to say, Job, I am praying for you, and, and I'm going to get you through this. Well, let's see if that plays out. Job chapter 2, verse uh, 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? She sees how Job is reacting. She says, why are you hanging on to your faith? Why are you being this man of God that does not waver? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. There's a helpmate for you. (laughs) Honey, bad news. Curse God and die. if I go back just two verses, I don't want to miss, sorry, Mike, uh, verse seven and eight, is it because all of a sudden things got better that he lost all this and all of a sudden, you know, he was doubly replenished in everything that he had lost? Look at verse seven and eight. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Let that sink in for a moment. This guy just went through every emotional, mental anguish that you can imagine. And now there's a physicality to it. And how is it described? From the bottoms of his feet to the tip of his skull. He's covered in these what we would call boils. Not trying to be gross, but they were painful. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. And he took a piece of broken pottery. I I know this is kind of graphic, but please grasp this. And he took a piece of pottery, broken pottery, with which he began to scrape himself as he sat in the ashes. Have you ever had poison ivy? And you go, I know I'm not supposed to scratch it. And all of a sudden, maybe you just brush up against something, and so it starts to itch. And you're going, I know I'm not supposed to. And then what do you do? And there's no stopping. I mean, it's like the more you scratch it, the more it itches. Well, these were painful, 
And, and one little bit of relief that he could have is that he's just scraping himself, you know, trying to get some relief from the physical pain. So the answer of this guy who's worshiping God, who's trying to wait well, who's trying to follow hard after God, it's not because everything went south and then all of a sudden, almost immediately, everything began to go north again. No, things that should have been an encouragement around him, a wife who's supporting and encouraging, he doesn't have that. Because things getting better, you know, all of a sudden you lose a job and, well, I got a job. And, you know, this new job pays $50,000 more than my old job. Is that why we can wait well? Well, maybe he just had some really, really good friends. You know, because a, a good friend in a time of need, can that be a real encouragement to you? For somebody who loves you and comes by your side and says, you know, we may not be able to fix this, but one thing we can do, we can encourage you, brother, and, and we can pray for you. Is that what happened in Job's life? Not in the least. Look what happens. As we begin to see these great friends come around, they begin to encourage him that it's all his fault. If you read the next couple of chapters, they come. There's three main ones that come, and they begin to come. And the whole time that they come, they start off somewhat encouraging, but as they come into Job, they said, okay, Job, tell us, what's your secret sin? Because there's no way that this catastrophe, this kind of devastation could happen without you. Somehow there must be sin in your life that you're not telling anybody because we have never seen this kind of calamity come down on somebody unless it was because of their sin. Now, guys, a part of that can be helpful accountability. Brian, you and I have been discipleship partners for four years now. And if something happened in my life, I I would expect of you, as you would expect from me, for us to hold each other accountable. And and I can see where the question would come up. Hey, Bobby, have have you searched your heart? Is there a sin that just, you know, that you're hidden? That would be love. But to go on and on and on. Because Job responded back and Job said, no, I've searched my heart. And I'm not saying that I'm a perfect man. But this hasn't been caused because of my rebellion and my sin. And yet they hammer, they hammer, they hammer. Tell us, what's your sin? We know it has to be something. This goes on and on and on. And right when you think that uh, Job would have... uh, kind of had the most most of everything. We began to see in chapters 3 through 31 that their accusations just come left and right. Look at Job 10. These are tender words. These These are passionate words. These are vulnerable words. And when I read this, I realize that some of you have been there. What's really saddening and what really hurts a pastor's heart is that some of you might actually be there now. Look look what he says. This is a faithful man. He just loves God, and yet he's human. He comes with such a heavy heart. He says, Job chapter 10, when he cannot find encouragement anywhere, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. 
I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and the favor designs of the wicked? From a human perspective, is that a legitimate question to God? I think a lot of us have been in a lesser place, you know, in a, in a place that's not as deep as this, and we've asked those questions. I, mean, I think there's been times in our lives that, you know, the detriment that came to our life is just like, you know, my team didn't win yesterday. Oh, God, this loathsome life that I have. And we allow drama to come into our lives and it's really not a dramatic moment in the big scheme of things. This is dramatic. He's lost his children. He's lost his his ability to take care of his family. His wife is not encouraging him. His friends are accusing him. Everybody's coming in. His life is not falling apart. His life is being torn apart. And finally we see by chapter 10, he says, I loathe my life. Those moments would come into Job's life where the reality of all that was happening began to weigh upon him. How did Job survive this? Did he finally just run out of gas and finally just cave? He did it by doing one thing, guys, and and here's the answer kind of to the story. Job learned not to confuse life's circumstances with God's character. Well, that sounds rather kind of simplistic. And yet I would think that that was one of the most challenging things that we will ever do in our lives. That when our lives are being torn apart, not falling apart, just torn apart, that we wouldn't look at the circumstances of life as grave and as serious and as, as personal as they are. This is, not le- this is not saying that these are shallow things. He lost his children. You don't get more personal than that, guys. This is not trying to say, well, it's not a big deal. No, it's a big deal. But he did not confuse life's circumstances with the character of God. He knew that his God was faithful, loving, and kind. And there's going to be times in your lives and in my life that that's all we have. That there's not a thing that we can point to in the circumstances of our life at that moment saying, okay, here's a reason to be happy. Here's a reason to be upbeat. Here's something that I can really point to. There may be those times that everything around us is dark, dark, dark. And all we know is that there is a God who has chosen us, given us Christ, and made remedy for our biggest problem, our sin. He's taken us from being an enemy to seated at the table as a child of the living God. Here's the challenge, guys. Theoretically, theologically, in the laboratory of a church and life group, that answer is pretty solid. And it really weighs heavy. But you know how we talk about 2 p.m. when the light is shining and 2 a.m. when darkness comes in? 
That answer is just as solid at 2 a.m. It just doesn't seem that way. Why? Because there is this one who's called the accuser of the brethren. Why would you think that Satan somehow would just look at your despair and your sadness and go, you know, they've had enough. Even as a child growing up, I mean, I knew that if we're, you know, I was both the recipient of a fight and I was the giver of a fight, you know, plenty of times. But even when you were fighting as a little kid, I mean, you got somebody in, you know, I can remember one time I was, this is really embarrassing. I shouldn't have started this story. It's not in the nose. But I bloodied this guy's nose and there was something within me that says, that's enough. Okay, it was my sister. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there was something within me that even though we've been angry with one another, we were fighting, that says, okay, I, I've heard this guy. That's enough. Do not think that Satan comes into spiritual warfare against you as a child of the living king with that mentality. We have that mentality. Have have you ever said, oh, how much more can that family take? Have you ever had that in earnest care for somebody? We have that mentality, but I promise you Satan does not. And that's one of the differences of your life falling apart and your life being ripped apart. Because there's an adversary, and he's aggressive. And so this is what we see happening here. Look at Job 13, 15. Chapter 10, he says, I loathe my, I loathe my, my, my life. And yet, Job 13, 15, kind of the focal verse of the day. Though he slay me. What? I'll put my hope where? In him. Who God is. Not the things that God does. Especially the things that God does in my own personal life. I'm not waiting for circumstances to change. Even though I want circumstances to change. It's okay for me to pray for circumstances to change. No, I'm going to, though he slay me, I'm dying here. I'm going to put my hope in him. It's amazing. I don't know that he ever really understands why it happened. I don't know that he really understands how it could get better. I don't know that, I don't know what's going through Job's mind. We're not really, we don't get an insight to his mind. We just have this statement, this great statement of faith. Though he slay me, I I will hope in him. He he does come back. He, He does begin to question some things. But it's a question out of the, the, the heaviness of his life, not so much that he's questioning the character of God. So oftentimes, we put our hope in changing the circumstances and the timing of that change. Would you agree? Let's just take something very practical. You lose your job, and your, your income is necessary for your family's you know, life. We can say, we can hide it in religious talk, and we can say, okay, I put my trust in him. But, but our hope, our hope really is, okay, I went on three interviews, and that one really went well, and, and if I get that job, they said I can start next Monday. Is that understandable, why that would be so easy to place our hope in there? Because it's very practical. We can touch it, and we can feel it. 
And so we're going to always have that tension, guys, to want to put our hope in the change of the bad circumstances. What is bad becomes good. And the timing of that. And Job doesn't give the appearance of this. He doesn't say, well, if I could have more children, life would be better. If I can, you know, just have a donkey or two and a camel or two, life is going to get better. I, I did it once, I can do it again. No, that's not human folks. No, I said, though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. His hope is in the character of God. Let me move through. Go all the way over to, to um, chapter 38. Because the, the, the next 35 chapters that we see, you hear from everyone, these friends, Job, having discourse back and forth. You, you hear from everyone but God. And then we get to chapter 38, and guess who speaks? This is a passage that I've referenced probably 20 times in the four years that I've been pastor here. If you're in discipleship, if you're one of my discipleship partners, this is something that we talk about a whole bunch, this kindness of God, this act that we read about right here. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Because here is Job, his life being ripped apart And look what God does. As Job begins to question God, not in a rebellious way, I don't think it's in an accusatory way, it's just in a wondering way. He just wonders. And God's answer to Job was a question back to Job. Job 38.4 Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he begins to ask questions. Guys, uh, do this this afternoon. What chapter is that? 38. Go to 39, 40, and 41. And just real quick, what do you see at the end of almost every verse? Or a lot of the verses? Question. Guess who's asking the questions? God is. And he's asking them Job. Is he rubbing Job's nose in his misery? No. What he's doing is he's asking Job questions to show how profound this God is. He's showing that he's in control. Okay, Job, let's just get perspective here because one of the first things that we lose when calamity comes and our life is being ripped apart is perspective. And one of the things that he adds back to Job's life is, okay, I just want you to know you have a mighty God. I was hanging planets. I was putting stars in the air. I was making the foundation of the earth. I was doing all these things. I just want you to know the God that you serve. Because guys, in those dark moments, that may be all for that moment, for that week, for that month, or for that year. That may be all that you get. It's the sufficiency of the God that you serve, not a change in your circumstances. We're waiting for this. We're wondering, when is it going to change? When is there going to be something bright that comes in our life? But this is what God says. I point your questions back to me, and I ask you questions so that you know 
that I, I want you to gain perspective, Joe. Where were you when all this was happening? What is your level of understanding? And God points all the direction back to his might and his glory. To the point that when we finally get to, to Job 42, Job speaks after all these questions, 60, 70 questions that God asked of Job in, in chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. And finally, Job says something. Job 42.3. I'm reading this from the CEV version. because it's, 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 uh, uh, I, I find it kind of funny. Not humorous funny, but strange human funny. You ask why I talk so much when I know so little. This is Job. I've talked about things that are far beyond my understanding. Guilty? Do you see the, and again, I'm trying trying to be comical. Do you see the comedy in that? That this understanding that Job has in his life, his circumstances have not changed yet, guys. And yet he, this, this time, chapter 42 is the first part of his time of repentance. And the time of repentance and realization. And he realizes, he said, why have I talked, why have I asked all these questions of you, God, when I know so little? I talked about things that are far beyond my understanding. Is God offended at your questions when when your life is being ripped apart? No. He is a kind, compassionate Father. Will God always give you answers when you ask questions? No. It's not because He's mean. It's not because He's stingy. It's because... The answer isn't the sufficiency of his who he is. You're waiting for circumstances to change. I'm waiting for circumstances to change. And so my answer would be, God, change my life. And his answer for us to finding hope while we're waiting, basically to borrow from another part of the Bible, be still and know that I am God. And it's really hard. I promise you, you're not going to find a more sufficient answer in all the Bible than that. Be still and know that I am God. Just know the character of the God that you serve. That's how we find hope in our waiting. We want a change of circumstances. God says, no, while you're waiting, you put your focus on me, that I am good, that I am kind, I am just, I am a God of wrath, but I am a God of love. I am a God who is the completion of all these characteristics. That's who I am. I am God over all things. And it brings us to a level, not of embarrassment. I don't think this is to embarrass Job. I think it's to put perspective. And one of the first things I need when my life is being ripped apart is perspective. Would you agree? How kind of God that he would ask all these questions of Job so that Job could get perspective. God is God. And I'm not. That's how you find hope while you're waiting. And on this first Sunday at Advent, that's, that's where you like this. 
this candle. Not because God all of a sudden is going to change the circumstances of your life, but there's hope in the midst of our waiting. Because he's God. That's enough. Folks, he's God. And that's enough. Be still and know that I am God. And you will find hope in your waiting. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you, Father. What an incredible story of a man. We don't want to be Job. Father, I, I, I am not asking you to give me the life of Job. I want the faith of Job. I want this ability to wait well. But I sure don't want the circumstances Father, that brought him into that place where his life was being torn apart. But Father, even if this is truly, as we believe, one of the first chronological stories of the Bible, Father, the answer hasn't changed. Father, now you've even colored in with the sufficiency of Christ of what kind of God you are. You are this God who is always faithful. You keep your promises. And when we, even when we are promise breakers, you are faithful when we are unfaithful. You are loving when, when we are unloving. And so, Father, today, as much as we want a change in circumstances, what our soul needs, Father, what our heart needs, what we need in our life, this Father, this morning, Father, is, is to be still and know that you are God. You are worthy. Your Son is worthy of our praise. Help us, Father, even in the things that we're challenged with this week, to wait, to wait well and to look at your worth. We love you, Father. We worship you and we proclaim your worth as we sing this song to you this morning, Father. As we pray this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.